0: my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Uh, If you're new, I would love to meet you. I'll be out in the lobby after the service, and uh, I'm just glad that all of you have taken time out of your schedule to worship with us today and to learn a little bit more about this God that has in so many ways changed our lives and, and and we just keep coming back because we just want to learn more. And, and we, we know the more we surrender, the more he changes us, the more we die to ourselves, the more we give up this old person we used to be, the more we find ourselves changing into someone new. And it, it's just an incredible experience. And so we come here every week to worship and thank God and also to encourage one another. We, we've been in this series uh, about the end of times, so and we're well into the series. This is the 26th week, I think, that we've been talking about this. And we're at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, and uh, um, we're in this time period where the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, the the ultimate wrath of God for the sins of the world is going to be poured out. And and John, the author of Revelation, has paused, and we've been looking at this for the last several weeks, to sort of introduce us to some of the things that uh, that are going to happen and the uh, key players during this great tribulation. Now for the last few chapters, John's told us all about evil. He's introduced us to the signs in heaven, the dragon, Satan, the first beast, the Antichrist, the second beast, the false prophet. We've seen Satan's attempt to try to mimic the Trinity. We've learned of the mark of the beast and the abomination of desolation. It looks overwhelming, doesn't it? I mean, you look at this chapter 13 and you're just like, Ugh, it looks horrible. Even Jesus said, when this time comes, run. I want to run from Revelation 13. This has been a difficult chapter. To see how Satan is going to mimic and deceive millions of people, to to understand how he's going to appear so humble and magnanimous and charismatic, and he's going to swoop an unsuspecting world off its feet, and then at some point truly reveal who he is and why he's on earth. And John even ends this chapter with this sort of ominous kind of phrase. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. You can just feel it in the air, can't you? It's kind of this, oh man, sounds horrible. But then John shares another vision. A vision that will occur at the end of Armageddon. He wants us to know that no matter how scary this false trinity appears, it is in fact false. Farce is no match for God. Satan wants us to live as though all we know is Revelation 13. But look at John's next words. Revelation 14 verse 1. And then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. A lamb, having his Father's name written on the foreheads. This lamb is Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was worthy. He's standing on Mount Zion, the mountain of Jerusalem. He's joined by 144,000 people who've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and have the mark of God on their foreheads. We've seen these 144,000 before. Back in Revelation 7, "'After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree.'" Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who've been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And he goes on to list 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. At the very beginning of the tribulation, God introduces us to these 144,000, these saints, these people. They've been sealed by God. They've been protected by God. They were introduced to us right after the sixth seal was opened by Christ. And now we see them at the very end of the tribulation and we see them victorious. And John is showing us that after all is said and done, Jesus and these 144,000 are standing firm on Mount Zion because they've become victorious. They persevered through the Great Tribulation. They're the first fruit of the great Jewish harvest that's going to occur during those last three and a half years. You see, John has completely flipped the script in one short passage Yes, there's an unholy Trinity. Yes, it's deceptive. Yes, they're going to try to destroy Christ. But in the end, John shows us Christ and 144,000 stand on top of Mount Zion. And they're the first fruits of a great harvest. He continues, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. Before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. This voice from heaven, like, like loud waters or loud thunder, we've seen that before. We've heard that voice. It's the voice of God from the throne. This time, however, it's different. This vision seems to connect heaven and earth. Perhaps symbolizing, finally, thy kingdom has come and thy will has been done. 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with Jesus and a voice like a waterfall and thunder from heaven. But something's different this time. In the midst of this, he begins to hear what sounds like harpists playing harps. It reminds me of what happens at Sarasota Memorial every day. Total craziness, intense clinical events, code arrests, traumas, rapid responses. In the middle of them, all of a sudden, you hear Brahms' lullaby playing over the speakers. It's the weirdest thing. It's like, that doesn't belong in what we're doing right now. But it's there. The two don't seem to go together. But I think that's exactly John's point. Uh, Prior to this, all we've heard from heaven are trumpets. All we've heard from heaven are battle cries and warnings and now we get the sound of a harp contrasted with thunderous waters. That's God, right? I mean, he brings us his judgment and his justice with thunders and roars, but for many at the same time, it's a time of salvation. Beautiful harps and for others. Under normal circumstances, you only hear one harp or maybe two, and the rest is drowned out by the orchestra, but this is an orchestra of harps. Soothing music of a harp is in stark contrast to the sound of rushing water and the boom of thunder. In a significant way, I think John is preparing us for the twin message that's about to occur. Salvation and justice are about to unfold at the same time. On the one hand, God's justice and judgment are overwhelming, the thunderous sounds. On the other hand, his promises are soothing and comforting, the tone of harps. In addition, they're singing a new song. This song was unique to the 144,000. No one else was able to learn the song. The strange limitation doesn't seem to be on the limit of their ability, but rather whether it's appropriate or not for them to sing the song, as if they've not yet deserved to sing that song if you're not part of the 144,000. It seems this worship song came from the depths of their experiences during the Great Tribulation. They're praising God from what they've experienced. Those who've not been through that really couldn't sing the song from their hearts. The throne, the elders, the... The four living creatures were the audience. The song's unique to the 144,000, but it reaches the altar of heaven. We first saw these people with Jesus at Mount Zion, and now they are singing a voice that reaches the throne. You see, our worship songs are the same. You realize that, right? I mean, we sing from our experiences, don't we? Each voice is unique when you think about it. I mean, we all may be here, we may all sing the same song, but what's going in our heart is very unique for us. Every time we sing a worship song, we sing it differently than the person next to us. We may all be singing the same words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, but at that moment, we begin to go into memories and moments where God has saved us. You see, our worship songs are just like this. Every time you sing a worship song, you're singing a unique experience with God. The words all sound the same, but the hearts are all remembering what God's done. Every time we talk to God about, or sing to God about the blessings, we all look at our own blessings. It's very unique. We all have songs that no one else can sing for us. We all may share the same words, but your heart is only yours. No one else can learn your song. That's where these 144,000 are. They've been through an experience and they worship God because of it, but you almost had to be in, well you did have to be in the experience to understand. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they're without fault before the throne of God. The Greek term here indicates that these are men who are sexual virgins. While virgin can mean young girl, it's not used here. These men were set apart during the tribulation, 12,000 from each tribe and sealed by God. It's not really surprising, as Paul suggested this, To the Corinthians, now concerning the matters about what you wrote, it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The context of this discussion that Paul's having with the Corinthians is how should we act because we know the end is near? What should we do? He continues, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. John's telling them, look, when the end times, when it gets towards the end, it may be better to be on your own if you're not already betrothed. Verse six, now a concession, not a command I say. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one from one kind and one from another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Jesus spoke about this as well. Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it's given. There are eunuchs who've been so from birth. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. You see, some from birth, some through the actions of men, but some made themselves this way because of the kingdom of heaven. That's what this group is. They're a group of men who've determined to stay sexually pure because of their devotion to God. They're living during the great tribulation. For them to have family concerns may seriously complicate God's assignment for them. So apparently these 144,000 represent Jewish men, 12,000 from each tribe, who constitute an order of men who agreed to abstain from marriage, to give themselves wholly to the task that is before them during the Great Tribulation. And rather than basically making a negative statement about marriage, the focus is supposed to be on the degree to which they've kept themselves holy for God. Now, it's interesting. He goes out of his way and he says, These men follow the Lamb. They're redeemed among men, the first fruits to God and the Lamb. They're the first of the great Jewish harvest. They're without fault before the throne of God because of their faith in Christ. These 144,000 were not only survivors of the Great Tribulation, they've been fully redeemed and fully restored. They can stand before the throne of God. Think about that for a moment. The same throne that Ed talked about, the one that John could barely face, the one that had thunder and lightning coming from it, and and described with lightning bolts, and we will one day, along with these 144,000 and a whole bunch of other people, stand before that throne without fault as well. It's incredible when you think about it. One final consideration. They will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This tells you about the character of the disciples. You see, Christians really mean to be a little Christ. Not a little like Christ, a smaller Christ. To live like Christ, to go where he goes, to do what he does. When people see us, they should see Christ in us. And the more we mature, the harder it should be for them to see us because the goodness and the holiness and the love of Christ is flowing through us so strong that they're almost blinded by it. Too many believers have missed this point. They want salvation, but they don't want to follow Jesus wherever He goes. These 144,000 are described as first fruits. They're going to bring the great in-gathering during the tribulation, and most believe that they are preaching and teaching the gospel to other Jewish people during this time. When these 144,000 were originally introduced back in Revelation 7, Immediately following that was the talk of a great number of people who were saved out of the great tribulation. Let me show you that Revelation 7:4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then skipping to verse nine, and after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, all tribes, all people, all languages, standing before the throne, the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. John next shows us another vision. Revelation 14 verse six. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This angel has a gospel message to proclaim to the whole earth. However, This is the only place in the New Testament where we see angels preaching the gospel. Hmm. You see, God entrusted his children, us, to share the gospel. This is one of the rarest of moments. And you have to ask yourself, why? Well, I believe it's because we've been raptured and we're not here to share the gospel. Others might disagree. Jesus spoke of this, Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This angel is proclaiming to the earth, Fear God and give glory to him, for his judgment has come. This is the last warning before the Great Tribulation. This is it. Not global warming, global warning. I worked hard on that one. <laughs> at some point, sooner or later, saved or unsaved, every person will acknowledge the truth of who Jesus really is. Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now here's the irony of this. People who reject Jesus damn themselves eternally by their refusal to face the truth. But ironically one day they're gonna be forced to face it whether they like it or not. Sooner or later the glory they refuse to give to the Creator will willingly be torn from them by His wrath. Every person will come to the exact same conclusion about Jesus. Every person will proclaim Him as God. Some because they realized it from His goodness, some because they realized it from His wrath. The choice is theirs. It's the eternal gospel. Some will rejoice because they heard it and were saved, others will not. And we'll read about what happens to them in a moment. Another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We're gonna cover Babylon in detail when we get to Revelation 17. But for now, just know that Babylon is the literal and at times the figurative representation of mankind in organized rebellion against God. Babylon represents every man-made effort to replace God, every false religion, every man-made government, every culture, every tribe, every people who reject God. It started at Babel and it will, it's reflected in Babylon and it's also a place Prophetically, Babylon sometimes refers to a literal city, sometimes to a religious system, sometimes to a political system, all stemming from the evil characteristics of historic Babylon. And we learn here that she's made all nations drink the wrath of her fornication. Note that this is all nations, all nations, including ours including every world empire we've ever seen, and including the Antichrist empire to come. We've all engaged in spiritual fornication, worshiping and making covenants with other gods when we supposedly made a covenant to God. Throughout the scriptures, God identifies his covenant with man as a marriage and any engagement with other gods as idolatry and fornication. He often accuses man of whoring after idols. Spiritual fornication leads people to immorality in almost every area of their lives, and it is the beginning of the destruction of human empires. The ultimate example will be manifested in the kingdom of the Antichrist. Revelation 9, 14, 9, Then a third angel followed, saying in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. This angel gives this ominous warning. No one can casually or accidentally take the mark of the beast the connection between worshiping the beast and taking the mark is going to be clear for everyone who does it. And yet you just know that receiving the mark will seem innocent to so many people who dwell on earth. In their eyes it may not seem much more than the Pledge of Allegiance or devotion of the Antichrist and his government. It's the same way in the first century for our Christian brothers who were asked to Pinch incense to the image of Caesar and claim him to be Lord. God takes our oaths and our covenants very seriously. Even if we don't. Particularly this one. This is the mark of the beast. Once someone takes the mark of the beast, God's wrath turns from using their sins to point them towards Jesus for salvation to being unleashed upon them. This is the ultimate decision that can't be made. It's the point of no return. Once someone takes the mark of the beast, it's no longer about pointing them to Christ for their salvation. It's about they will be destroyed under the wrath of God. In fact, the choice of words that John uses here emphasizes this. Throughout the New Testament, the word for anger is orge. But in Revelation, John uses the word thymos. Thymos implies an explosion. It's where we get thermonuclear from. Thymos is only used 11 times in the Bible, and 10 of those are in Revelation. You see, usually when God talks about people's sin, He talks about forgiveness and repentance and come back to me and we'll forgive you. But from this point forward, when God talks about sin, He's now talking about His anger and how it's going to flash against them. It's so critical to understand that we're moving to a point in time where God is no longer about pointing people to Jesus, he's done. This is about bringing his wrath upon people who don't believe and it's called the great tribulation. God's ultimate judgment. It's passionate anger, the word means. See, we fully transitioned from trying to save people to point out the wrath that they've earned, the undiluted cup of His wrath. The image of drinking in a, an undiluted cup of God's wrath is already known in the Bible. Wine was most often diluted in the pres- with water. A heavy fermented wine could be a powerful drink if you didn't dilute it. But when that drink is not wine but God's wrath, and it's undiluted. His fury is unleashed. The idea that God holds a cup of wrath, which he makes under judgment, as a drink is expressed more than 13 times in the Bible. It's like people are sinning. They're hurting people. And God's like, you're just filling up the cup. You keep going, you're filling up the cup. That cup's yours or Jesus's. You get to decide, but you're filling up the cup. At some point, somebody's going to drink this wrath. It's going to be you or Jesus. That's what he's telling you. Psalm 75, 8. For the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. Drinking the full cup of the full wrath of God was overwhelming. No one could do it. No one could stand it. This is the idea of the cup that Jesus wanted to avoid in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, My Father... If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, people ask me, and I'll just go on a tangent here for a minute. People ask me all the time, how do you know Jesus is the only way? How do you know? Because he asked in the garden, Father, is there any other way that we can save these people that we love? Anyway, God. Let this cup pass. Are you sure the cross is the only way? God didn't say, well, let me tell you, there's this Muhammad dude coming later. He didn't tell you, well, you, just wait till L. Ron Hubbard writes a book. No, he said, look, I'm sorry, but this has to happen. It's the only way we're going to save the people we love. It has to happen. He asked three times, and three times gets the same answer. So Jesus had to drink the wrath. He had to take God's full, unhindered wrath on the cross for every person's sin. The same wrath is still there for those who rejected him. I mean, literally, think of it this way. There is a cup that is full of the punishment of your sin, and it's been building every day you're on earth. And at some point, that cup has to be poured out. And if you don't accept Jesus to drink it for you, you're on your own. You will be tormented by the wrath of God for your sins. I'm not going to candy coat it, it's just true. How do I know that? The next verse. He shall be tormented. With fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. Whoever receives the mark of his name. God is serious about this. Throughout scripture we see Jesus taking encouraging approaches to those who sin. They're victims of Satan. You were deceived. Repent. Confess. Come back. He never really puts a non-believer to shame. He had a chance with the woman at the well, he had a chance the woman caught in adultery, he said no just repent and come back. But now it's all changed. And a change comes with the mark of the beast. Once somebody rejects Jesus to the point of the mark of the beast they're guaranteed to receive the full wrath of God that they've earned for their sins. Many in our culture want to downplay hell. Many believers have downplayed hell. Tell them about how good Jesus is, how he's their friend. Don't tell them that they're bound to go to hell for eternity if they don't surrender to him. Many believers have redefined hell and they teach it just, well, it's just the absence of God. It's just the absence of God. Which is not true. They can accept separation from God. What they don't want to talk about is torment. Yet this is the moment when Jesus says, torment is coming for those who refuse Christ. Note that this torment occurs under the watchful eye of angels in heaven and Jesus. It shows that the suffering of hell is real torment. It's painful, it's repulsive. It shows that God is not absent from hell. He's present in all his holiness and all his righteous judgment. Those who are in hell wish he were absent but he won't be. It's wrong to say that hell will be devoid of the presence of God but it will be without any sense of his love. The presence of Jesus will be there but only the presence of justice and wrath against sin. Those who worship the Antichrist and receive his mark will endure the wrath for all eternity in hell. Forever and ever. It means forever and ever. Literally, into the ages of ages is what that means. It's the strongest expression of eternity in the Greek that's possible. Verse 12, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their work follows them. Don't miss that. The end of the tribulation. Blessed are those who get killed rather than live through this. Blessed are those who get killed and know Christ because they will be delivered. They'll rest from their labors. You see, we say, oh, it's the great tribulation, as if we amped it up a little bit. No, it's the full wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And the scriptures say, blessed are the saints, and particularly those who die in the Lord from now on. We see the strongest contrast here between the rest of the saints and the torment of the wicked. The harps and the thunder. can only imagine the courage and comfort this passage had to bring to those who were trying to persevere during the great tribulation this passage is going to mean a lot to them they're the last standing people for Jesus in a world that has rejected him they know they're going to have to refuse the beast they know they're going to have to be beheaded and God says blessed are those who die They die for the cause of God, they die under the smiling approval of God, and they die to live and reign with God forever. And then it says, their works follow them. The patient endurance and work of these saints is remembered in heaven. One of the things you will take to heaven with you is the work that you've done. So we see God is turning the tables. Now we read about two harvests to come. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. The last crown we saw Jesus wear was a crown of thorns. Now he's crowned in a golden crown. The Greek word here usually does not refer to a crown of power but rather a crown won in conflict, a victorious crown. See, when Christ comes to judge the world, he'll weld the crown that he's won in the great battle that he's fought. It's the victor's crown. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on earth and the earth was reaped seated on a white cloud like the son of man with a crown of gold on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel appears and says, it's time. The One seated on the cloud begins to reap the earth. Once again, the problem with the apocalypse is the identification of who all these people are. This is a passage that is often used by people who believe in mid-tribulation rapture that it occurs right here. Um, I, I don't ascribe to that, but I get where they're getting it. Uh, it just seems to me there's too many other passages that point to a pre trib rapture. And if you're curious about that, we spent three weeks on it about 20 years ago. No, about many weeks ago. Um, this ancient Greek word for ripe has a negative sense to it. Okay. When we hear the word ripe, we think, you know, just a fruit that's really ripe. This particular word is only the sense of being overripe. It's dry and withered. You better get to it now or you'll never get to it. You see, it's the overripe for judgment. God has waited and waited and waited. He can't wait anymore. The judgment has to come. We need to remember something, though. There is a harvest for those who've done good. And there's a harvest for those who have sinned and refused to repent. There's a harvest of misery and woe that occurs. There's a harvest for the gathering and binding and burning of the tares, as well as a harvest for gathering the wheat into the barn. The first harvest here at the end seems to be about wheat. This is what Jesus spoke of, Matthew 13:24. So the servant said to him, then, do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest the gathering of the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And then at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. And the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear." Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also has a sharp sickle. This harvest is going to be about grapes and wine. Revelation 14.18 And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The sickle is used to, to... gather the clusters of ripe grapes. The angels swing his sickles and they're thrown into this wine press that they're comparing now to the wrath of God. These are in turn trampled outside the city, which, which has to be a reference to Jerusalem. God is using the image of a wine press and the grapes literally spurting out under his wrath to describe what's going to happen to the armies who oppose him in the end of times. This is the passage that that inspired the battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Verse 20, and the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs fully ripe. This time the word image full grape full, bursting with juice trampled outside the city. These people are full of their own wrath. God protecting Jerusalem. But this wrath, God's wrath is compared to a wine press. And basically just so you know, they would take a bunch of grapes and they would put them in this circular thing and they take these huge stones of weight and they would literally push them around and compress the stone so it crushed the grapes. And then the grapes would pour out the wine as they pushed it around. What they're comparing here now is Jesus has come. He's pouring out the winepress of the wrath of God. The people who have rejected God are being crushed by the weight of judgment, by the weight of His wrath. The grapes in the wine press are compared to the spurting of blood and the awful human carnage that's gonna come when God pours his wrath out through the weight and it will spew like wine. The text appears to show a river of blood flowing for 200 miles to the depth of a horse's bridle, which would be five feet from the surface of the ground. A river of blood 200 miles long and five feet deep seems inconceivable almost. It's possible though that what he's referring to mentions that blood flows like grape juice from an overflowing winepress that's found over an area of about 1600 stadia or 200 miles. In other words, the violence of this carnage is gonna spread out over the battle of Armageddon and blood is gonna flow like juice, like a winepress, and it's gonna splatter everywhere, including as high as a horse's bridle. This picture, of course, is conceivable. It's gonna be the bloodiest war in history and it's gonna cover a wide-ranging territory. Megiddo is 50 miles north of Jerusalem and it seems it will be the center of the conflict, thus the name Armageddon. The Bible takes its name from that central valley and it's likely going to spread far beyond it. Megiddo or the Valley of Armageddon When Patton saw that valley, he said it was the greatest tank war valley he's ever seen in his life. Every major world conqueror has come through that valley to conquer. The last will be the Antichrist. He'll be defeated there. You see, Satan wants us to live in Revelation 13. Rather than victoriously in what we know about Revelation 14. Revelation 13 is all about Satan and what he's going to try to do. Revelation 14 is, yeah, but he's done. These two chapters set the conflict in order. Satan is the imposter, and in the next chapter, he is slaughtered by the truth of God. Revelation 14 is the perfect answer to Revelation 13. At the end of Revelation 13, it almost seemed like Satan and the Antichrist might win. The number of the beast is six, six, six. Six, three score six. Revelation 14 shows us who's really triumphant, powerful, in control. God, his Messiah, his people. Not some fake trumped up trinity of evil. And jumping to Revelation 19, we see the true conqueror. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. You see, the last half of the tribulation is all about the wrath of God being poured out by Jesus. When he returns, his enemies will be slaughtered like grapes in a winepress. You see, Satan wants you to think that he is a formidable foe until you see Jesus. So, How do we apply this to our lives? Well, I think many of us walk around every day as though we've been defeated by Satan. I don't get it. We live as that all, like, all we know is Revelation 13. If asked, we'd say, well, Jesus wins in the end. But then we quietly think to ourselves, well, it's not the end yet. As if victory is yet to be won. So often we live defeated lives, fearing everything, worrying about everything, and not living out the new life in the spirit that Christ actually died to give us. If there's ever a group of people who should be bulletproof and victorious, it's believers in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus didn't win at the end. He won at the cross. He's already won. It's done. The end is just the exclamation point. One of the reasons Jesus came to earth was so that his followers would make sure they knew that they can go ahead and start celebrating now. What we know and believe should change the way we live. Or we need to question what we believe. Jesus told us, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Too many believers walk around every day as if they don't know this. In Christ, they've been given an abundant life, just waiting to be lived right now. But they've allowed Satan to do what he does. He steals your joy, he destroys your hope, he kills your dreams. In Revelation he tries 13, he tries to kill everybody. Revelation 14, we find life and we find it abundantly. As a follower of Christ, you're living in one of those two chapters. You're either stuck in Revelation 13, unable to move past your fear of Satan, or you're strutting high in Revelation 14, joining the victory parade. It's your choice. It's easy for us to study Revelation and get focused on Satan. Dragon, the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophets, the Babylon, those opposed to God. But this is a book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the one being revealed. We've known all along who Satan is. John is showing us now who our Lord really is. John wanted us to know the full revelation of Jesus Christ so that we would live differently while we're here, not waiting until the end. That we'd walk in victory, not defeat. That we would walk confidently in Christ instead of cowering to Satan. We'd have no fear of death because we already have eternal life. And we know we're loved, and we too are sealed by the one who wins. That should change everything about how you face tomorrow or later today. Nothing can touch you. You are sealed with the Spirit of God. You're here. Nobody can do anything to you. All you got to do is live in the joy that was yours, that Christ actually paid for. Can you imagine how it must make him feel to know what he did on the cross and to know people are going, well, that's good, but have you seen Satan? No. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We've already won. Make sure as we continue this study, particularly during the Great Tribulation, that our focus is on Christ and his victory and not Satan and his tomfoolery. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you show us the future. I thank you, God, that you wanted us to know that in the end you win. You've always won. There's never been a question or a threat of that. But God, we need to hear that. Our world is not in a good place. We're seeing things begin to happen that you promised would happen. If we didn't have you, we'd be very afraid. But God, we have people we love. Lots of people that we love who don't yet know you. So God, would you help us to live in a way, a way without fear, a way without worry, a way with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control to where all the people around us ask us, man, what is going on with you? You have something I want. And then let us be ready to share the reason why we have the hope that we have. God, we love you. We thank you that you've already showed us the future so we could live in the present. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.